chapter 21. Look at the first 14 verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again. Now this after this would be after he's appeared for the second Lord's Day in, in a row. After that occurrence, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer, put, put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, a full, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We ask now that you bless the reading, the hearing, now the preaching of your word so that we might grow into the very image of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen. As we've seen the last couple of weeks, Jesus comes to his struggling people. We saw for two weeks in a row, he particularly comes to his struggling people on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the resurrection day. But now we see him coming, and this is the third time, we're told, 
by John. This is the third time that he, he makes himself known to the disciples. And this time it's not on the Lord's Day. It's a day of the week. We don't know which one. He doesn't tell us. We just know it's, it's a different day. It's not the first day that John takes much care to point out when he's dealing with the first day or the Lord's Day. And, uh, and so we see, again, that he cares about his sheep. That's one of the messages of this chapter is that our Savior cares about us. He knows our voices. We know his voice. Go back to John chapter 10, which we looked at many moons ago now. Here he is again, caring for his sheep, whom he knows, even when, even when they didn't recognize him. He's still there to take care of them. We... Um, we are cared for by a Savior who cares for us like a husband cares for his bride. That's the image that we have in the Bible. We saw it this morning in the book of Ruth as we surveyed the book of Ruth in the adult Sunday school class. We have, uh, we've seen it uh, elsewhere. That's what that's what Paul draws from all those Old Testament husband-wife stories. And he speaks of that in Ephesians 5, that this is, this is when you see a, a godly husband caring for his wife the way he's supposed to, loving her sacrificially. That's a picture of Christ loving his church. And we're supposed to aspire to that. We're supposed to... We're supposed to work toward that end, aren't we, gentlemen? Husbands, nod your heads at this point in the, in the show. Yes, we're supposed to, that's what we're supposed to be striving for. That's what we're supposed to be working toward is that we would love our wives like Christ loves his church, even unto death. We as husbands try to emulate his perfect care. We fail, but he never fails. So this passage is about a Savior who never fails. He's always there for his people, even when they, they don't know that he's there. Now, I have to say this because some of you may be thinking what others have thought. You know, this chapter 21, it seems to me that the book ended with chapter 20. Anybody thought that? Well, if you didn't, you're, you, you're strange. I'll just, you didn't pay attention because chapter 20 ends with what sounds like the perfect ending to the gospel according to John. And that is, okay, this is why I wrote it. So that you might believe and have everlasting life. The end. But then there's chapter 21. And so just for full disclosure, I have to say people have questioned then that whether chapter 21 actually belongs in this gospel. All sorts of speculative positions have been offered as to why it's there. Some have said, oh, it was something that was appended to it 
years later. We don't know when it came in. Some have said, no, it, it, it's probably maybe some disciples of John that attached this because of the way it reads uh, toward the end. But I follow the, the position that has been set forth by a number of, of very worthy and able scholars. Uh, Herman Ritterboss, I think, said it most strangely for a Dutchman succinctly. Who would have thought? Usually Dutch aren't very succinct, uh, especially biblical theologian Dutchmen aren't very succinct, but Ritterboss was. And he said, after he says, here's this position, here's that position, he simply said, no, there's nothing, nothing out of order, nothing peculiar here. This is John having said, okay, the primary purpose of why I wrote, you've seen so that you might believe. But then he does what you'd expect, Ritterboss says. He adds a transition chapter that transitions us from Jesus' work on this earth to his, just what he did in chapter 20, he breathed the Spirit on them and said, as the Father sent me, so I'm going to send you, and now he's doing it. This is the sending chapter. This is the transition to the book of Acts. And that's what it is. So, with that dealt with in simple fashion, let's move on. Very simple sermon. The disciples together, but on their own. That's what the first three verses tell us. The first verse, actually, John says, well, let me set the context for you. When Jesus revealed himself to the disciples, this is the way it all started. The way it started was these disciples who were mentioned decided they would go fishing. Now, of course, you have to ask the question, were they right in going fishing? Some people have said, no, no, in chapter 20, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you here, go. But then we have the little issue of Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says, you go, and when I send the Spirit, then you go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I, I, I take it with, with the preponderance of scholarship that when Jesus in chapter 20 said what he said about sending them, that this is, this is my purpose, I'm sending you. But they still had some preparation. Peter certainly had some preparing to do. And Jesus addresses that later in this chapter. We'll see this in the coming weeks. So there's still some time until Pentecost when Jesus is going to be with them. In fact, this period between the resurrection and when, when Christ ascends and Pentecost comes is 40 days. Some of you will remember that years ago uh, I talked about a little book that I'd read by T.V. Moore. Is a, in a little Banner of Truth paperback series. It was called the forty, the last forty days of Jesus, or the forty days Jesus, uh, his post-resurrection uh, 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 
the, the, the things that Jesus did during those post 40 days of his resurrection. He just basically simply worked through in that little book all the appearances of Jesus, including this one, and talked about all that Jesus was doing to, to further instruct his apostles specifically now, not the church, uh, that is not, or not the public. He's not in the public any longer. He's instructing the church, the apostles representing the church on what they're going to be doing, how they're going to be doing it, and reminding them why and what the ground was for them doing this, him. He's, he's the ground. He's the basis. So those 40 days were very important. So I don't think there's anything particularly unseemly about them going fishing. Just as it's nothing wrong with you having been sent as a church and as individuals uh, into the public sector to tell people of Christ. And yet, you decide you'll go fishing. That's fine. As long as you just don't stay on the lake all the time. But what we do find in this is that there is something that may not be exactly right. Because Peter says, I'm going fishing. They say, okay, we'll go with you. They go out, and here's what John wants everybody to know first and foremost. Nothing. Nothing. That's the reason I give this label to this first point, the disciples together but on their own. And it's not until they get close to the shore that Jesus comes into the picture. So while I just said there's nothing particularly wrong with them going fishing, there seems that John wants us to know there was some little something wrong with them going fishing. And they were out there on their own. And if you've ever been in that situation in your life, don't get caught up on the fishing thing. You may be saying, but I don't fish. So I've, I've not ever experienced this. Well, but just... You ever found yourself feeling all alone, like, you know what, I'm out here, and it's like God's not even close. Don't raise your hands, but everyone in this room that's honest, and I hope that's everyone, has been there. If you're of any age at all, you've been at some point in your life where you just felt like, you know, I'm out here on my own. Some of you have made some horrific vocational choices and you realize this is not what God wanted me to do. And you had to change. You had to repent. Some of you may have made choices concerning a spouse. Hopefully you determine before the marriage vows. Boy, this is, this is not what God would have me do. There's a host of situations we could find ourselves in. And these disciples found themselves in this situation. They were out there on their own. 
They get back. As the day was breaking, you think about it, kind of the dawn is there. They can't really see the shore very well. Probably some mist as well as just not much sunshine casting light on, on the people on the shore. Day was breaking. Jesus stood on the shore. Disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And we, again, we don't know if it's because of the mist and the, the lack of sunshine or if it's like Mary in the garden. We've got the resurrected body of Jesus here. We've got the glorified body of Jesus here ready to ascend. And while it's Jesus and they do eventually recognize him just like they'd known him before, there's something different. And that's the way you and I will be because Jesus Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. Let me just throw this in because I heard it again this past week. If you die before Christ comes and your spirit is immediate, note the word, your spirit is immediately taken into the presence of the Lord while your body is put in the ground. You're not in heaven with Jesus with a glorified body, a new body. That doesn't come until that great John 5 episode, the resurrection day, when Jesus descends and the bodies of those who are who have predeceased will take on their new bodies, and we who are still living will also be changed in the twinkling of an eye into a resurrected body. Then we enter into Revelation 21, 22 context, the new heavens and the new earth. So don't make the mistake I heard this week. Oh, you know, she died this past week. Now she's got her new body in heaven. No, she doesn't. I didn't call in to tell them they were daffy. I just thought it. But a lot of people don't think through this biblically. That's what's going on. They just, what is... Okay, we, 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 don't, we don't recognize him completely. They didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said, children, do you have any fish? Notice the first thing he says. Now, if we're right and they've gone out on their own when they should have been doing something else, probably praying, The first thing you and I would say is, have you caught any fish? Notice he does ask that. But we would have just said, have you caught any fish? No. Huh. Not surprised. You try to go do something without me, you're not going to be successful. That's what you and I as Jesus would say. unless we're just in a particularly good, sanctified day. Did you notice how Jesus begins? Children. Children. Is it any wonder, by the way, that when you go to the epistles of John, that that's one of John's favorite ways of addressing the church, children, little ones, this is not children in the sense of, oh, look at all the children out here. 
And there I'm, I'm speaking, and the Greek have a word for that. It's generic children, you know, minors. This is, this is the little one. This is the one that needs absolute, total care. This is the one that needs providing for. This is the one that's still on milk, but growing up one day to meat. It's an affectionate term. And that's the way Jesus calls out to them. And that's what we'd expect from the real Jesus, not from us being Jesus. He's the one that we're told will not even crush a bruised reed. Let me translate that. You've got something already trampled down in your garden. You and I grab it and throw it on the burn pile. And Jesus doesn't do that. He won't crush even that which is already bruised and bleeding. Rather, he says, come to me all who are weak and weary and heavy laden. That's what he's doing here, children. We're going to see it personified next time with Peter. Peter, do you love me? Go feed my sheep. Aren't you glad that our Savior, when we're not doing what we should be doing, perhaps not even where we should be, comes to us not scolding us, but like a father who loves his children. And then he does something else. Some of you fathers have had this experience. Your children do something and it's a flop. And you come along and say, hey, let's try this. Let's do it this way. Or you see your, your child trying to learn how to do something and they're using the wrong end of the toothbrush. Our dentist in Greenville had imprinted on his toothbrushes that he would give Dr. Don Kelly and his phone number, and then right under it was, for best results, use fuzzy end. That's what godly moms and dads do, right? You teach your children how to use the fuzzy end of the toothbrush, not the hard one. And when you see them doing it the wrong way, you step up and, and that's what Jesus does. He just treats them like children here. You have any fish? No. Cast the net on the right side of the boat. And by the way, I feel compelled to say this. That's not a political statement right there. If, if, don't ask me why I'm compelled to say that, but I have heard sermons preached on this kind of passage that makes much ado about this being, you know. Anyway, we were not going to go there today or tonight or any other time.
that's dumb enough to answer itself. It's not a political statement. It's not even particularly a social statement. It's a, it's a logistical statement. Put it over there. Put it on the right side, on the geographical right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Now, they've been fishing all night. You've heard sermons from this passage, and the pastor went on and on. Hey, think about this. They've been fishing all night. I'm not going to say that. They have been fishing all night. But even though they were out without Jesus on this occasion, they did it. So they, in John's very matter of fact, so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it. So we move from being on their own to being recognizing that they have a need and they do what this person says. And notice John's still waiting because he hasn't figured this out yet. It's at that point the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom we've talked about before, most likely is John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. So now they realize the Lord after they've realized their need. And that's the way it always is, isn't it? Again, we saw in the adult class, we're not going to realize who Jesus is until we know we need Jesus. We have to know our need. That's the reason the law is so, so wonderful and so necessary. The law is what tells us we need a Savior. Paul says that if, if the law had not told me that I was coveting, I would, have, would not have known that I needed a Redeemer. So they know they have this need and they know now who it is that meets that need. It's the Redeemer. It's the Lord. It's Jesus. John recognizes Peter does the impetuous thing that Peter's apt to do. And he jumps in the water, wades or swims. We don't know how deep the water is. There's speculation. It doesn't matter. It's a hundred yards wading in a, in a, in a, a gown be not the easiest thing to do, not the most pleasant, but he does. And the others think, no, this is dumb. We can, we can paddle in faster than he can swim in. So they paddle on in to shore. They came dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards. They need Jesus and he's there for them. He called them children and he told them, don't give up. And they listened. And then, notice the third thing. The disciples together with the resurrected Jesus. Oh, by the way, let me ask you a question. It's the Lord. When you find your needs to be met, as in every time at least you sit down to eat a meal, give us this day our daily bread thing, you know. When you find your needs being met, provisions being made, whether it's health or whether it's material, whether it's whatever, 
Friends, this convicting, convicting question is your response, it's the Lord. It's a good question. It's a good, good spiritual diagnostic question we should ask ourselves every day at least once. Is my response right now, it's the Lord. That was their response. All right, now, move on from the conviction. Third point, the disciples are now together with Jesus. So they're to the shore. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, fish laid out on it. Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Why? It appears that they already have fish. Jesus already has fish. He's already made provisions. But he tells them to bring some fish. Now, we don't have a clue. This is a heavy load of fish, apparently, based on the way it's, it's, it's said earlier. And now Peter, with some superhuman strength, grabs it and drags it. Don't ask me. I don't know. We've all read the stories of people picking cars up off of their children when a car has, has run over a child or, or a child's, a, a young person's working on a car and the car, the jack collapsed and the car falls. Real stories. Somebody just, the adrenaline kicks in. Don't know. Maybe that's what happened. That's not really John's point other than there were a lot of fish. The net was not torn. Peter drags them up there. And Jesus says, come and have breakfast. That's the main point. That's what this fish story is all about. Come and have breakfast. And then you notice, none of the disciples asked then, who are you? Because they knew who it was. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with fish. In other words, he provided for them and he's the one that gave them what they were going to eat right now. He's serving them back to, I came to, to be a servant and here he is serving them one more time. They've been out all night fishing. They're hungry. He's got a fire going for them. He has fish on the fire. That's what Jesus does is he meets us in our needs. Now, some lessons from the fish real quickly. Uh, John always has a purpose for all the history he lays out. It's a theological purpose as we've studied before. First, he's vindicating the historicity of the event. This is a real event. It really took place. And it's distinct from the other fish and bread stories. Notice he doesn't divide the fish or the loaves here. It's just straight up. Everybody got a whole piece. Everybody got a whole fish. All right. Second, he's showing the Lord's merciful care for his poor and needy children. His compassion is new every day. But then finally, you, we, we can't miss, we can't avoid the theological point John wants to make here. And it's in the, it's in the mill. And I'm going to just read this to you for sake of time. Ritterboss says it so well. He says this. 
Jesus makes the usual meal of bread and fish, which the disciples have so often shared with him, into a resurrection meal. Not only by sitting down with them as the risen one, but also by involving them in it as those who share in his resurrection power and as those who will continue his work on earth. Therefore, he goes on to say, he says, you bring some of your fish. Now when Ritterbaugh says this is a resurrection meal, he's calling these disciples to share in his resurrection power Does anybody else say this in the New Testament or is this just John or is this just Ritterboss making it up off the top of his head? Ephesians 1 is what some of you are thinking right now. The Apostle Paul says that the same power that raised Christ is at work in us, the church, today. That's what Ritterboss is doing. He's saying, that's what Jesus is doing. He's establishing. You bring, you bring some of yours put with mine. And that's the way we live. The resurrection power. He's at work in us, but we're at work. When he says in Philippians, that it's God who's at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. He says that after he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So who's working? When I'm preaching up here, who's working? Well, the Holy Spirit is. But I am too. I'm going to tell you, if I come up here and just stand quietly, and there is a, there is a religious group that does that sort of silly thing. But there's nothing communicated. The Spirit takes the Word, John says. It's the Spirit and the Word. It's me working out my salvation, helping us all work out our salvation, but it's the Spirit who's at work in me and in us to will and to do his good pleasure. That's what Ritterboss is saying. That's what Jesus is doing. He's calling them all into the resurrected power. This is what the mill's all about. And it's going to be what they need to move into Acts chapter 1 in just a few days from this moment in history. We live in constant need of the resurrected Christ and his resurrection power. We share in that resurrection power. As Christ is showing them by example, and as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, we share from his provisions which come to us every day. It's the Lord, y'all. I hope this morning you want to be quicker to recognize the Lord than these disciples were. But even when we're not quick to recognize, 
he still loves us as his children. And it's the same, same thing he's going to do for us is he's going to, he's going to speak up at some point. He's going to call us children and draw us to himself and he's going to provide for us. I personally like fish and bread. But whatever it is, coming from his hands, it's good. Because he only does good for his children. Father, thank you. We ask your blessings now on this, that you'd use it for our good, for your glory. Amen.